Shalom, everybody. Oh, gosh, you guys can do better than that. I'm sorry, but, you know, you just can. Shalom, everybody. Thank you. Now you've made a nice Jewish boy feel at home. You're in a community where there are probably more Jewish people than any other community I know of in the whole Bay Area. So I'm sure, having talked to a few of you, that a number of you actually have Jewish friends, Jewish coworkers, probably Jewish relatives. And so we're grateful for the opportunity of being with you in this joint service today. Um, the last time we were with Pastor Steve was about five years ago. That is us, Janie and I. I know that last year, uh, one of our colleagues, Rich Robinson, was here as well. So you may hear some things today that will uh, be a refresher, reminder to you of what you heard last year, but I hope that uh, you'll uh, pick up some things that perhaps are new that you didn't know before. You know, when I became a believer in Yeshua, now how many of you have heard that name before? Okay. So when I became a believer in Yeshua, everything changed for me. Life became one new discovery after another as I studied God's word and realized the depths of his love for me. You know, one of the most, I would say, unexpected discoveries that I made was how my own Jewish holidays now revealed the Messiah to me. As a believer in Jesus, I've discovered that the Jewish holidays have a far greater significance than I ever had imagined before, even though... Believe it or not, I've celebrated them my entire life. You see, the Jewish calendar tells more than just the date. It is a cycle of seasons that are punctuated by regular times to celebrate and recall the mighty acts of God done for our people in ancient times. It's a way for us to know who he is and to be wholly devoted to him in the here and now of our lives. I hope you heard that. We need to be wholly devoted to him. If we're not wholly devoted to him, there's something wrong. The festivals that I am going to share with you today, commanded by God, are built-in reminders of his power and his presence that should affect us personally. God knows that we need these reminders because the moment that we forget them, what happens? We get into trouble, don't we? Don't we? Uh, if you haven't figured this out yet, I believe in interaction. Okay, so I don't expect you to just sit there passively, you know, it's kind of like, I mean, I heard that question asked and answered about who's the introvert, who's the extrovert. I have a hard time believing those numbers because I was watching you guys during the greeting time. You guys are not introverts. Well, maybe you're introverts with outsiders, but you're certainly not introverts with one another. The fact is, my people today still celebrate the festivals, though I believe that the significance is lost on the great majority. We're going to discover that the way these festivals are celebrated today has changed radically since biblical times, and too often, the message that God wants my people to hear clearly through the feast has been obscured. You know, the biblical festivals find their fulfillment in Yeshua, in Jesus, as he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and all that my people have ever hoped for. It's my hope this morning that you're going to understand what I see, what I believe is an intimate relationship of promise and fulfillment as we look at the fall feasts. We're not going to look at all the, fall, all the feasts today because if we looked at all the fall feasts or all the feasts today, uh, I'd have you here till this evening. 
Okay, so just be aware that you might be here a little longer than normal, but not that much. The fact is, the feasts show us who our Messiah Jesus is and what he did for us and what he is going to do when he returns. Now, with this in mind, please turn with me to probably one of the most feared and ignored books within the entire Old Testament, which is the book of Leviticus. And if you don't have a Bible with you, in the pew racks, there is a Bible, and you can turn to page 120. When this book was written, it was in no way intended for the understanding of just a select few. You see, the Jewish people were required to know what was expected of them for serving the living God was to be a priority for all the people. Now, Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, if you've read through it before, consists almost entirely of laws uttered by God at Mount Sinai when the Israelites stopped over there. The laws that he gave are varied. There are some general ones. There are some specific ones. There are some ceremonial ones. And there are some moral ones. Now, the laws are severe. Yet... They're merciful. The book of Leviticus simply sets forth these laws and principles by which the Israelites were to live as God's chosen people. Now, it's fascinating that while Leviticus could be considered probably the most legalistic book in the the entire Old Testament, there is no other book that more clearly sets forth the redemption that we have in the Messiah Jesus. Now, the Bible presents Israel as a nation that's set apart from others for God's special purposes. Even the way that my ancestors kept track of time was to be different. You see, the feast days were special times sprinkled throughout the calendar designed to keep our focus on the Lord and on his mighty deeds and on our purpose as his people. The instructions for these special times are outlined in Leviticus chapter 23. Now, let's begin by looking at the biblical instructions for the festivals. Follow along with me as I read from Leviticus 23, verses 1 and 2, where it says, The Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. The first of these appointed times is the Sabbath. It's a weekly reminder of God's creation of the world and of his covenant with Israel. And you can see in verse 3, it says, For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. The other feasts fall naturally into two distinct groups. You have the first group, which are the spring feasts, and they're related to Passover, and they're found in verses 4 through 22. And these festivals depict the beautiful story of God's redemption of his people from slavery in Egypt, his provision, as well as his faithfulness to us in the wilderness. Now, while they are important, our attention today is going to be focused on the second group. The second group are the fall feasts, which are observed during the seventh month, the holy month of Tishri, which are seen in verses 23 through 44. Now, this second group of feasts, the fall feasts, is the focus of our discussion this morning. Let's read about them. First, you have the Feast of Trumpets. Okay. 
Let's try that again. <laughs> we are having technical difficulties. But when they, anyway, we have the Feast of Trumpets in verses 23 through 25. Then we have the Feast of Atonement, or I should say the Day of Atonement, from verses 26 through 28. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, known as Sukkot, verses 33 and 34, and on through the rest of the chapter. Now, there are some rather unusual instructions that are given here. And what we find is that the lessons taught by these festivals follow a very natural progression of thought. It's a progression that we would do well to keep in mind. You see, the Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah, in verses 23 through 25, teaches us repentance. In verses 26 through 32, you have the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, which teaches us redemption. And then through the rest of the chapter, you've got the Feast of Tabernacles, which teaches us rejoicing. Now I'm going to, oh, well, we've gone ahead. That's great. Thank you. What we learn through this 15-day period is the fact that it's necessary for repentance and redemption to take place in order for us to experience his joy. Now, only when we know that we're forgiven can we truly rejoice. Is that right? Is that right? Yes. Thank you. In this cluster of appointed times, I believe that we see nothing less than the gospel, the good news of salvation. Now, let's take a closer look. The Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah. The first of these three holidays in the holy month of Tishrei is the Feast of Trumpets. And the Hebrew name of the festival is Yom Teruah. Now, let me read verses 23 through 25 through, for you. It begins like this. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, in the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. Now, God wanted us to commemorate the beginning of the seventh month. You know what? I'm not worried about the PowerPoint. Sorry. Listen carefully to me, because what you see up there is not so important. It's just for you to follow along, but if you listen carefully, you're going to hear exactly what you need to hear. So I'm not going to worry about that, and I'm just going to continue. How's that? Like I said, God wanted us to commemorate the beginning of the seventh month. He said not to just stop working, but to blast a trumpet to get people's attention. Now, blowing a trumpet was not that unusual. You see, in fact, a trumpet was blown at the beginning of every month. These were sweet-sounding, melodious trumpets. But the trumpet blown at the beginning of the seventh month at this time was to be a bit different. The word trumpet is translated from the Hebrew word shofar. How many of you have ever seen or know what I'm talking about when I say shofar? Okay, well, let me tell you, shofar is a special trumpet that is made from the hollowed-out horn of a ram, perhaps the most ancient of wind instruments. Now, in case you've never heard the sound of a trumpet, let me tell you, or I should say the blast of a shofar, believe me, it's anything but sweet. It's loud, it's shrill, and it makes your hair stand on end if you have hair. 
Now, why so shrill? The fact is, I believe that the rabbis correctly understood that the shofar blast was a call to repentance. It was a wake-up call. It was God's alarm clock going off. And up to the present day, the central aspect of the celebration of the festival is the blowing of the shofar. Now, it's possible that the shofar is also a reminder of what Jewish people refer to as the Akedah, which is the biblical account of the binding of Isaac, which is found in Genesis chapter 22. Now, remember this story. God tested Abraham's obedience, didn't he? Did he? Thank you. He, re- he, he tested his obedience by requiring him to sacrifice his own son, the son of promise, the son through whom he had promised the redemption of the world on Mount Moriah. Now, Abraham obeyed a command that seemed to defy reason. I mean, think about it. You know, he was 99 years old, right? God finally gave him the son of promise, and now God is asking him to sacrifice his son? Doesn't that defy anything you can imagine? Thank you. The fact is, he did so because he knew that God could do the impossible. He believed that God could even raise the dead. Thus, he became the classic model of faith. Now, you might be wondering, what's that got to do with a shofar? Well, at the last moment, as you know, if you know the story, when Abraham was about to slay his son, the Lord stopped him and pointed him to a ram that was caught by its horn in a thicket, the ram that God had provided to serve as a substitute for Abraham's son. In Jewish tradition, this connection with the binding of Isaac is emphasized, and that passage of Scripture is read during the Rosh Hashanah service or the Feast of Trumpets. Now, the rabbis believe that we Jewish people can appeal to God on the basis of the righteousness of Abraham and the other patriarchs, and that their righteousness can actually be credited to us. I'm convinced that the rabbis are mistaken on this point, that they've sadly missed the true significance of this event in the lives of the patriarchs. You know, as we reflect upon God's mercy in substituting a ram for Isaac, we see a beautiful foreshadowing of the substitutionary sacrifice of Messiah. The fact of the matter is that Abraham was not required to sacrifice his son because God provided a substitute. Now, like Abraham, God was willing to offer his only son. Unlike Abraham, he was not only willing, but he did sacrifice his son, Yeshua, to pay the penalty for our sin. Though he had no sin, he paid the penalty for sin. It's because of his righteousness that through faith, we can have God's righteousness credited to us. If you're taking notes, you can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 for what I'm saying there. Now, before I move on to the next festival, I want to mention a bit about the modern Jewish understanding of the Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah. First, I should let you know that to Jewish people, The festival is really known as Rosh Hashanah, and probably most of you would have known the holiday as Rosh Hashanah as well. It's the Jewish New Year. Now remember, from the biblical perspective, this festival was actually at the beginning of the seventh month. Now the biblical year began not in the fall, but in the spring with the observance of Passover. Since it is the Jewish New Year celebration, it's known as Rosh Hashanah. For the rabbis, it's a time of repentance and solemn introspection. 
One of the things that Jewish people traditionally do at this time is to eat sweet things, such as apple slices dipped in honey or honey cake. And the reason why they do this is because they want to express the hope that God will grant them a good and sweet year. Now, as we've seen, the Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah, takes place just 10 days prior to the Day of Atonement. And let me read for you verses 26 and following that speak of the Day of Atonement. Beginning in verse 26 of Leviticus 23, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On exactly the tenth day of this seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. You shall not do any work on this same day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. According to Jewish tradition, Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of 10 days of judgment when all humanity must pass before the Creator. The righteous are written into the book of life, the wicked are condemned, and those who are not wholly righteous nor wholly wicked are given 10 days to repent and thus escape judgment. Thus, these are called the days of awe, the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah, or the Feast of Trumpets, and the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur, are known as the Days of Awe. And during these 10 Days of Awe, Jewish people try to tip the balance to ensure that they will be written into the Book of Life for a good year through good works. So what do Jewish people do at this time? Traditional Jewish people? Basically, what they try to do is they mend relationships, mend broken relationships, they give to charity, they recite long confessions of sin. You see, the customary tradition at this time for Jewish people and the greeting that is given is Lashana Tova Tikatevu, which translates, may your name be written in the book of life for a good year. Now, for those of us who know Jesus, who know Yeshua, we should have no fear of God's scrutiny because Christ is our righteousness and we're already sealed in the Lamb's book of life forever. Now, we look with joy for his return, don't we? And when he will come with the trumpet sound and the voice of the archangel to bring us into his Sabbath rest for all eternity. Now, as we've seen, the Bible tells us that the Day of Atonement was to come 10 days after the Feast of Trumpets in verse 26. As I said, the biblical name for this particular holiday is Yom Kippur or Yom HaKippurim, which means literally the Day of Covering. The name of the festival is derived from the Hebrew word kapor, which literally means to cover. The purpose of this festival is the covering of sin, because this is the heart of the gospel that's found in the Old Testament. Is it not? Thank you. Scripture tells us that we're to offer special sacrifices on Yom Kippur. You see, according to Scripture, there's only one way to atone for sin, isn't there? How do we atone for sin in the Bible? Shedding of blood, blood, that's right. The price must be paid. As we read in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, for the life of the creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. You know, to this day, there is no temple standing in Jerusalem. There is no animal sacrifice, and there's no mercy seat. My Jewish people have to rely solely on verbal repentance. Now, in spite of Yom Kippur, 
a day that Jewish people dedicate to atonement, there is no assurance on the part of my people that their prayers for forgiveness have been heard or answered. There's longing and there's lots of hope, but they have no assurance. How would you like to go through your life having that kind of life, no assurance that your sins are forgiven? We see in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, that atonement is found only in the blood of a sacrifice offered upon the altar and at the ark. The fact is that when Jesus offered his own blood as our atonement on the cross, he did make atonement for us. And two graphic events occurred which confirmed the acceptance by God of his sacrificial atonement on our behalf. First, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God demonstrated in a very dramatic way that he had opened his way into the intimate presence in the Holy of Holies. Now, once this fellowship was only the privilege of the high priest and only once a year, now this intimate fellowship has been made available to all of us who come by faith in the sacrificed blood of his son, Yeshua. I'm going to stop here for a minute. I want you to know, Pastor, that I don't ever believe when I speak in a church that everyone I speak to knows Jesus in a personal way. There may be somebody here today who might think that all of what I'm saying sounds great. It's better than great. If you have not acknowledged Jesus as your kippurah, as your covering for sin, may I ask you with a most sincere heart to not leave this place today without speaking to somebody who can tell you a little bit more about what I've been talking about because without that assurance that your sins are forgiven, you will go to a Christless eternity if you don't know him in a personal way. And if you don't understand entirely what I'm talking about, that's okay. Speak to one of us. We'd be happy <clears throat> to explain exactly what I mean. The second thing that happened, not only was the veil of the temple rent in two, but the second thing that happened was that the earth shook, the rocks broke, and the dead came out of their graves in Jerusalem. And this was testimony to his messianic power on earth and a demonstration that the kingdom of God had indeed come. You know, the apostle Peter declared the sufficiency of Yeshua's sacrifice very eloquently in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, where it says, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now, you know, there's going to be a great and final day of atonement for the Jewish people, which has been promised by the prophet Zechariah. When all Israel will mourn for the Messiah, the pierced one of Israel. And at that time, they will all know his atonement. And if you're taking notes, take a look later at Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 and following. Now, with the destruction of the temple, there was no proper place to make a sacrifice. So our rabbis have decided... Okay, get this. The rabbis have decided. It's not within God's word, but the rabbis have decided that until the temple is rebuilt, prayer, fasting, and the doing of good works would somehow have to suffice at, as it was the best that could be done under the circumstances. You know, Yom Kippur, as you probably know, is still considered by Jewish people to be the most holy day of the Jewish year. It's the day when Jewish people fast all day and they implore God for forgiveness but again, they have no assurance that they have that forgiveness. 
the rabbis have minimized the need for the shedding of blood of a substitute and the need for sacrifice to cover sin is disregarded by a majority of my people. Just totally disregarded. Once again, let's consider the elements of the biblical Yom Kippur. It was to be a bloody sacrifice to atone for sin, a sacrifice that takes sin away. These sacrifices prescribed in Leviticus were temporary measures, token sacrifices made year after year that pointed to the time of the fulfillment of the Messiah who offered his own blood once for all. Now, our messianic fulfillment of Yom Kippur is detailed in Hebrews chapter 9. And here we see that Jesus is our great high priest. He's the one to whom the entire Aaronic priesthood points. Now, while the, true, while the, while the Jewish high priest entered into a man-made replica of God's dwelling place, Jesus entered the most holy place. And that holy place was not made by human hands. He entered the true dwelling place of God, heaven itself. Now, on what basis did he enter? While the Jewish high priest entered symbolically every year by the means of the blood of bulls and goats, and after carefully preparing himself through a number of ritual cleansings, Jesus entered by means of his own blood, there to make atonement once and for all. He is the perfect priest who offered the perfect sacrifice in the true tabernacle of heaven itself. What my Jewish people today fail to understand is that Yeshua, that Jesus, is our Yom Kippur sacrifice. He is the true meaning of Yom Kippur. You know, the Bible tells us that the Feast of Tabernacles was to begin five days after the Day of Atonement. And if you're still in your Bible, at Leviticus chapter 23, you can find these instructions that are beginning in verse 33. And due to time, I'm not going to read, but I've told you where to look. Verses 33 on through the rest of the chapter. Now, the people were instructed to do a few things. First, they were instructed to rejoice in the presence of the Lord for seven days. That's in verse 40. Now, second, during this time of rejoicing, they were to live in booths for seven days. The Hebrew word translated booths is sukkot, which can also be translated tabernacles or tents. The people were to live in tents for a week. Thus, they were to identify with and remember that the Lord had supernaturally delivered their ancestors from slavery in Egypt and then went on to supernaturally provide for them in the wilderness, manna for, seven, for 40 years. Do you know what manna really means? Do you know what it means? What's this? The people didn't understand, and so that's what it means in Hebrew. What's this? What is it? The fact is, the God who faithfully provided for their ancestors, in spite of the ways they repeatedly tested his patience, would also provide for them. Now, I want to go quickly through how the feast is celebrated today. You know, even as the Day of Atonement is completed, now that happened for those of us who are Jewish last night at sundown. Yesterday was, and you know, in a Jewish calendar, it goes from sundown to sundown, the days. So Yom Kippur is over. And even as the sun is setting on Yom, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Jewish people begin to make preparations for the Feast of Tabernacles. It's traditional to at least begin putting up your sukkah, your booth, okay? I don't know about you, but I'll bet in this neighborhood you'll probably see people in their, on their lawns or in their backyards building a sukkah or booth. 
And in contrast to the solemnity of the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles is a time of rejoicing. And you might be wondering, well, how do, they Jew how do Jewish people celebrate it? And as I said, people build these in their yards. And if you went to Israel at this time, and you saw some of the high-rise apartment buildings there, some Jewish people will build these sukkahs on the rooftops of their apartment buildings. And sometimes you'll see these TV antennas sticking out of the top of their booths. I don't think that's exactly what God had in mind, do you? <laughs> you know, for these fall festivals, memories of building a treehouse or sleeping in a tent in the backyard, you can understand why Jewish kids look forward to this feast day. The older kids and the adults gather the materials and take part in the sawing and the hammering together of the framework, and then the younger kids decorate the sukkah or the booth. In many, in, in many places today, you know, people will actually live for that entire seven-day period in the sukkah. I don't think most people do that today. I think most people, if they're going to do anything, they might eat their meals if the weather is not too bad in that sukkah. Jewish tradition describes a major ceremony of Sukkot in the time of Jesus. And this ceremony was not part of the instructions that are given in the Bible, but it was known as a ceremony of water drawing. Let me give you the sequence of events. Procession of worshipers followed the high priest to the pool of Siloam. We're talking in the Jerusalem area. And what he would do is he would fill special golden pitchers with water. And then the crowd would follow him back to the temple. And he would pour the water into two magnificent silver basins that would be placed near the altar. And at that time, the people would pray for rain. And Israel, as you know, maybe you don't know, is basically an agricultural society in the midst of an arid desert. And water there, even to this day, is a symbol of life. Now, I think that it was very likely during the water-drawing ceremony on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Sukkot, nearly 2,000 years ago, that according to the Apostle John, a visiting rabbi stood up and cried out in a loud voice, If any man is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his inmost being shall flow rivers of living water. That's John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. This rabbi just happened to be the Son of God, the Messiah. You know, the Apostle John tells us that he was speaking prophetically of the giving of the Holy Spirit. The invitation was not to those who merely thirsted for water, but to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and whose hearts pant after God as a deer pants after water. Jesus was offering life and redemption to the people back then. Now, we can see a couple of other ways that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. In the prologue of John's Gospel, we read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt means, literally, he tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. And just as the God of Israel dwelt among his people in the tabernacle and the temple, he dwelt among us in Yeshua, in a tent of human flesh. Now, the eternal aspect of the Feast of Tabernacles will be fulfilled when God's plan of salvation is complete. And it can be seen in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4, where it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself 
will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Now, I hope that we've seen that it was always God's desire and plan to dwell among his people. He dwelt among my ancient ancestors in the tabernacle in the wilderness. He dwelt among the disciples in the person of Yeshua. He dwells among believers today in the person of the Holy Spirit. But one day, we will know his presence in a way that we can now only imagine. Ultimately, the whole earth will become the house of God. And Yeshua, Jesus, will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords for all eternity. Then we'll begin a depth of rejoicing that will make our present joy pale in comparison. As I conclude, I want to sum up our focus this morning. I read to you some of the biblical passages and instructions that we were given for three festivals that were to take place in the seventh month. Just as a reminder, the feasts are the Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, and the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. As we've seen, they're still celebrated by Jewish people all over the world, though for the great majority, their true significance is not understood. The Judaism of the rabbis is not the Judaism taught in the Bible. I've already told you, and I'll remind you, in Judaism, there is no assurance of God's forgiveness. And that's illustrated probably best in the story of a rabbi by the name of Yochanan ben Sakai. Let me read you a little bit of his story. As he lay on his deathbed, he had some disciples of his own come to him. And I want to read from that rabbinical account. It says, when he saw them, he began to weep. We're talking about Rabbi ben Sakai. His disciples said to him, lamp of Israel, pillar of the right hand, mighty hammer, why are you weeping? He replied, when there are two ways before me, one leading to paradise and the other to Gehenna or to hell, and I don't know by which I will be taken, shouldn't I weep? Contrast those very bleak words with those of a far greater Jewish sage. This man knew that although repentance is vital to salvation, repentance alone can never save. His words are found among other places in the book of Romans. His name? He wrote these words in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? How many of you know this verse? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. I don't have much time, because I've already probably taken much too much time, so forgive me if I've done that. You know, we in Jews for Jesus love to come here, because we believe that we have a lot that we can share with you and we want to be an encouragement to you and we also want to not only be an encouragement to you but we want to be people who you can look to if you need help in sharing the gospel not only with Jewish people but with all people. We want to be a resource to you. And I want to point out a couple of things to you. Uh, we have this involvement card which 
probably everyone in this room has seen before, but I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. I would like you to take that involvement card and tear it along the perforated line, and I would like you to keep the smaller portion of card, but then fill this out. We need your help. We've told you this every time we've been here before. We need your help in three ways. The first way in which we need your help is through prayer. By filling this card out, even if you've done it before, it's your way of demonstrating to us the fact that you care about us and that you will pray for us as we continue to do the work of Jewish evangelism, reaching out with the gospel to Jewish people. We want to keep you informed about how God is moving in the hearts and minds of Jewish people, and we'll do that by sending you our newsletter. Second way in which we need your help, as I've told you, is we want to be a resource to you. And we've set out a resource table in the back. And that resource table will have some free literature, some not-so-free literature. We'll be there afterwards to answer any of your questions. Third and final way in which we need your help is financially. And this morning, you're going to be given an opportunity to give financially to Jews for Jesus. And this card is a way that you can use to allow us to know if you're giving us a gift because there's a place to fill in the amount that you might give. But we want you to give only if God is leading you to do so. And it has to be an over and above gift. You must support your local church first. So we want you to know that. But if you'd like to give a gift, if you give a gift by a check, is it all right for people to make them to Jews for Jesus? So if you're writing a check, you can write it to Jews for Jesus. Either way, fill in the amount that you're giving because we not only want to send you a tax-deductible receipt, but we want to send you a personal thank you note to let you know that we don't take your gifts for granted. In closing, I'm going to take five more minutes of your time. And the reason I'm taking five more minutes of your time is I'd like to give you an example of what God is doing through Jews for Jesus in the land of Israel. So I'm going to ask for the DVD clip to be shown. And with that, I will thank you again for allowing us to be with you here this morning. And I would call upon all of you to join us in what for Janie and I has been a 36-plus-year adventure with Jews for Jesus. Thank you. <laughs> 